0: Faith is most proved in the face of great suffering. That's true for all of life, whether it's a trivial thing or it's a significant matter. Faith is most proved in the face of suffering. And this is true of trivial things like sports. When I first moved to San Francisco in 2007, I saw a whole bunch of people wearing yellow shirts that had in blue letters, WE BELIEVE. And I was confused because I was under the impression that people in San Francisco were not that religious, but a whole bunch of people were believing. I'm like, what are you believing in? I have no idea. I came to discover it was the slogan for the Warriors back then, uh, which was a team. At that time, I had no idea who they were. Uh, I didn't follow basketball that much. I was like, who are like? Where are the gold? Where is the Golden State? Where where is this team? But I discovered uh, as I looked back and thought about this, this was a team, in that in 2006 made this huge trade because they were terrible and they needed to do something. And so they made an eight-player trade with the Pacers and it got them barely to the playoffs. They were eighth seed. And surprisingly, in the first round of the playoffs, they defeated the Mavericks in the first round. And that began this huge rallying around believing that the Warriors could win after a decade of terrible losses. But they got to the second round and lost to Utah and then didn't make it to the playoffs again until 2013. And that began another season of tremendous winning for the Warriors. The fans of the Warriors, through the 90s and through that season of the 2000s, before 2013, if you kept going to the games and cheering them on and watching the games, you suffered through bad years, <laughs> some really bad years. But despite horrible performance, you were faithful to that team in the midst of suffering. Faith is most proved when you are faced with great suffering. This is true of trivial things like sports. It's true of significant suffering in our lives. Faith is most proved in the face of significant suffering. C.S. Lewis penned these words in the book he wrote in reflection uh, upon the death of his wife in a book called A Grief Observed. He said, you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. It is easy to say, believe in a rope to be strong and sound as long as you are merely using it to cord a box. But suppose you had to hang the, by that rope again over a precipice or over a wall. Wouldn't you then first discover how much you really trusted it? That's the experience of Job. We have here a good man, a good man who's upright and upstanding, who is proved to be someone who isn't deserving of judgment, and yet he experiences loss in an extraordinary fashion, as we will see today. And because he suffers so profoundly, it begins to reveal what he truly believes about God, because faith is most proved in the face of great suffering. It proves and it shows, it reveals what he truly believes about God. We're going to look at how Job goes from riches to rags, and this helps us understand suffering, and it helps us understand how people who believe in God should begin to respond to it. We, we learn from his suffering how to, how to suffer wisely, how to suffer in a manner that is actually unique to this world. This passage actually has four scenes to it and they parallel each other. You get a scene from heaven and then you get a scene to earth and it goes back to heaven and it goes back to earth. And that's kind of how we're going to organize our time by looking at this heavenly perspective and then look at the earthly perspective and the earthly circumstances of pain that Job experiences, and that's how we're going to organize our time, the heavenly perspective, learn some lessons from this perspective, and then look at the earthly experience of suffering and loss that Job goes through and glean lessons from Job's suffering. First, the heavenly perspective, and we actually get that perspective in verses 6 to 12, and then in chapter 2, verses 1 to 6, we get another heavenly perspective. We began last week, and the book of Job begins with this introduction to this man who's blameless, upstanding in character. He's prosperous. He's one of the most significant people in the East. Verses 6 to 12, you begin to jump from earth to heaven. And you're transported, and you get this perspective, we get this perspective that Job never gets through the entire book. Look at me again at verse 6. Now there was a day, and was this ever a day, when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The curtains pulled back, and we are given this privileged perspective in heaven of the workings of God, working in his will, and his authority, and his policies, working in and through supernatural beings, which are called here the sons of God presenting themselves for duty, carrying out the will of God throughout the earth. Sometimes the Bible calls and translates the sons of God as angels, as we will see in various parts of the Bible, like Psalm 29. We have here this divine council, or you could call it a heavenly cabinet, kind of like a president might call his senior staff to the Oval Office to meet and plan to execute the president's policies and plans. We see this heavenly cabinet gather We read about this kind of council and gathering in Psalm 82 and Psalm 89. This is one of the ways we get pictured how God carries out his will throughout the world. One of these supernatural agents is called the Satan. The Satan uh, or the Satan literally means an accuser or prosecutor in legal terms. He's an enemy in certain contexts. Now, at the first glance... It's not clear if this is actually the Satan who is the adversary from Genesis, as we see throughout the New Testament, or this is just a general label given to some heavenly being who has the rule of prosecution in the cabinet of God. But given the nature of the attack that continues to deepen against Job, that even when the Satan is proved wrong at the end of the first attack, he goes again and wants to attack him more. It's likely that this is not just a label of a prosecutor in God's cabinet. This is the Satan through the entire Bible. The one we see at the beginning and the one we see finally thrown away in the end in Revelation. And this picture gives us something that we need to understand in order to navigate our understanding of suffering. First, we need to understand how God rules and we need to understand the context that we're living in. This Perspective reminds us that we live in a world that is more than just what we can see, taste, and touch. There is a supernatural dimension to this world that includes accusers and enemies, includes Satan himself and those who follow Satan. And the Bible calls this, in the New Testament, principalities and powers. Some people live life ignorant or unaware of this entire dimension of life. And if you live with that kind of unawareness or ignorance, you, you miss out in, on the understanding and the approach of how things are more than just what goes on here. But other people live to the other extreme, and they blame Satan for everything. You run into traffic on the way to school, like I do every single morning, and you're like, that's Satan this morning or you go to buy some groceries or get some snacks for the game later today, and there's long lines at Safeway. That is certainly Satan, right? He's working overtime this morning, stopping me from enjoying the game. We don't see either perspective. We cannot ignore him. Neither can we see that everything is Satan's blame. But we do see that Satan does work against humanity. Peter knows this very well in his experience very well, that Satan is at work, and there's an element of life that we have to acknowledge that includes principalities and powers. There is spiritual warfare. That's why he writes in First Peter chapter five, verse eight: "Be sober-minded, be watchful. The adversary, or the Satan, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion." I read this this week, and I was like, "Shoot! That means the lions are actually of the devil. I don't know if this is good." <laughs> Shoot! It's called a snake too, but so I'll cling to that instead. But seeking someone to devour. So we have to be watchful. I think maybe in our church we maybe have people who go to both extremes. Many of us may live in this ignorant perspective, unaware, and so we don't pray. That's why many of us, when we gather to intercede on behalf of our missionaries, or we call prayer meetings. That's why actually maybe maybe it reveals why we have lower participation in those things in our church because we're ignorant of those realities. Maybe that's possible. Or maybe some of us are way too much involved and we think everything is, and we're looking for, we come into the room and we start to look under the chairs and we don't see either perspective throughout scriptures, but we cannot be ignorant of this supernatural dimension. Second, this gives us an understanding of the nuances of the governance of God in this world. We get this perspective of God ruling as a sovereign king over all things, including the enemy. We don't have a perspective here that we see good versus evil as equal opposites dueling. That's called dualism in philosophy. That's the philosophy that undergirds Harry Potter. That's the philosophy that undergirds Star Wars, if there's equal and opposite forces. And, you know, you want to cheer for the good because the good is actually not actually in control and they have to win against evil. And evil can win. We don't have that perspective. No, God is in control, completely in control. Satan can do nothing without God's permission. God is completely in control, right? That's the perspective we have. And we need to grasp that because most of the stories, most of our thinking shaped by those many many stories we experience in our life paint good and evil as equal opposite forces. We imagine if somehow God is entering the ring and you get announced God is in this corner and then Satan walks in the other corner and then some divine, you know, neutral party announces let's get ready to rumble, right? That's not how the heavens are pictured. God is completely in control, and this is important to understanding. And it helps us understand how to respond to the various perspectives that people or answers that people give to suffering or the answers. And this is just a surface understanding, but this is really important to begin to grasp. And so I encourage you to dive deeper in some of these thoughts. I think a lot of Christians respond with this theological phrase called the retribution principle. Or it's a kind of a moralistic way of answering suffering in this world. So most people say, well, if you do good things, you'll be blessed. And if you do bad things, you'll be cursed. And that's a general principle, as we mentioned last week. And much of the world operates generally like that. But that's not always the case. And we see here in Job that this is a significant example that it is not universally true in every circumstance. And yet a lot of Christians will say when someone's going through suffering, you must have done something wrong. You see that throughout Job's conversations with his so-called friends. You see this in the Gospels where a, a family and people come to, and they ask a question of Jesus. This man was born blind. Who did, who did sin? Did he or his parents? And so this understanding of moralism driving how suffering can be answered where it's always, well, if you do good, you're going to be blessed. And if you do bad, that means you're going to be cursed. So if bad is happening, you must be in sin. And that's not always the case. That's not always the case, and we need to understand that. A lot of people answer suffering by blaming God. Well, if God is all-powerful, and there's suffering in this world and in my life, there is some reason for evil and pain that means God must be evil. And that's a fatalistic view of the world. And the only answer we have for that is you just have to get over it. That's just the way things are going to be. Or some people respond not by blaming God, but by kind of excusing God or making up excuses for him and saying, well, God is, you know, over all things, but he's not all that powerful. That, that's the kind of solution an Auschwitz survivor, Harold Kushner, suggests in his book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. He, quote unquote, solves the problem of suffering by saying God is just doing his best and we can't blame him because he can't actually eliminate suffering. That's one answer that people give to suffering today. He's, he's not powerful enough to do everything. We need to just cut him some slack. He's doing his best. But here in Job, we get this heavenly perspective that we need to understand in order to rightly answer suffering. God is certainly sovereign. He's sovereign over evil itself even, over Satan. Satan cannot do anything without him, his permission. And yet God is not then the author of evil, It's Satan's idea to attack Job. D.A. Carson, a scholar, says it this way, to put it bluntly, God stands behind evil in such a way that not even evil takes place outside the bounds of his sovereignty. So God is over all those things. Yet, the evil is not morally chargeable to him. It is always chargeable to the secondary agents, to secondary causes. We're told that God is still in complete control. Satan is not allowed to do anything without God's express permission. He's sovereign over all these supernatural beings and decides how his creation will be governed. And we see that even though Satan is the author of evil here, initiating this evil attack and suffering, God can actually overcome the the Satan. He is limiting him as we see that he cannot go so far. And also he continues to overcome him so that even Satan's plans are failed. And so we see God is sovereignly in control, He's never not in control, but he's not the author of evil. It's Satan who is actually acting. And yet, even in that, God is working out in his sovereign plan how he will overcome that evil and limit that evil. That's something we need to grasp when it comes to the question of suffering, that God is still in complete control. There is evil worked out in secondary agents, and despite that, God can overrule and limit, and he will eventually overcome that evil. Another thing we begin to see, and it's a very important verse here. I spent most of my reflection this past week here, so we'll spend a lot of time here for a second. This question that Satan asks is actually revealing the main way that Satan usually attacks his people and actually reveals a very important question every follower of Jesus needs to ask themselves. Look at verses 9 to 11. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? In fact, you could say this is the summary of the entire book, this question. Does God or does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. This is how Satan usually works. He works to break humanity's relationship with God ultimately actually he's not interested in your stuff he's not even interested in your body as he attacks Job what he's interested in breaking is the human relationship and worship of God he insinuates Job's prosperity is why Job worships God does Job fear God and love you for no reason no he really only loves you because you've protected him and you prospered him if you take that away he's going to curse you to your face Maybe, Satan is insinuating, Job has discovered the prosperity gospel. He discovered that it works for him. He discovered that if he honors you, God, you will make him rich. He'll have a great marriage, which will result in tons of children. All his children will be successful and healthy. His wealth will grow. He will become one of the most reputable people in the the earth. He will have regular amazing feasts and a lifestyle that will cause billionaires around the world to be jealous. Satan is asking, who wouldn't be religious? Who wouldn't honor you if they had all of that? Satan's question, though maliciously insinuated and asked, is actually very important for us to consider because it's very true even though he's using that question to attack, the the question in and of itself is a very important question that every follower of God needs to eventually answer. Am I following God because of the stuff God's giving me? Because of the stuff I get? Am I in church? Am I giving to the church? Am I serving in the church just because of these secondary blessings I get from God? Is our Christianity just for show? That is a question that every church Every follower of Jesus needs to ask themselves. Is it just for show? Behind all this worship and profession, I'm just looking at God as some divine Santa, a vending machine. If I say the right words, he dispenses the right blessing or some kind of divine business partner where if I uphold my side of the bargain, then he will uphold his side of the bargain. Is it a covenant relationship or is it a consumer relationship? That is an important question that we must wrestle with. Am I in relationship to God as a consumer because I want to get from God? Or am I in a covenant relationship with God where he is valuable despite what I get from him? That's actually the kind of relationship we enter into in marriage, which is why it's one of the most important earthly relationships that depicts our relationship with God. Because in a covenant, you're saying to your spouse, I want you despite the circumstances. I want you because you are valuable in and of it yourself, not what I get from you, despite sickness and wealth. and all, every, We could lose everything, but I'm committed to you. That's what a marriage is because it's about that person, not what you get from that person. Is that the kind of relationship we have with God? To be honest, this question, when I ask it, makes me very nervous. And I really hope it makes you nervous, because it really gets at the heart of my relationship with God. Am I in relationship to him as the consumer or in covenant? Is this real worship or just performance? It's a question that We have to ask ourselves that we as a church have to ask ourselves not just once actually it should be a question that we evaluate ourselves in and suffering here's the thing about it suffering suffering has a way of revealing the authenticity of your relationship and i don't love saying that but it's actually true when god allows christians to suffer And our responses to him are, how dare you, God? You have betrayed me. You owe me. It actually reveals what kind of relationship we have with God, whether it's consuming or covenant. Maybe a human relationship analogy may help get this point across, right? If you, let's just say you rise to the top of your business or your field, some of you are medical professionals, some of you are in finance, some of you are you know, academics. Maybe you rise to the well, a significant position of influence and stature in your particular field. Maybe you, you, you started your own company. Now, you, you're one small company got bought for a billion dollars now. You rise to a certain level or of influence or wealth, you're gonna notice a lot of people who are beginning to hang around you for various reasons, right? Some of them, sometimes you can't even tell what the reasons are. But a lot of people want to be your friend. They want to hang out. They want to get lunch and coffee. They want to do drinks. They want, they want to be around you. What happens as a CEO? You sold your company, but that, that industry just radically changes. And all of a sudden, it's worth nothing, and you lose everything. All those people around you, some of them, majority of them, maybe be gone. And it's actually when they're gone, you didn't lose a friend. Because... What they were in it for was not you. They were in it for themselves. We experience this as children. We experience this as adults. When people are around you, not for you, but to get from you, that is a unique kind of pain, isn't it? Our relationship with God must be greater than the secondary blessings he gives to us because here's the thing. It's only a matter of time where we will lose every single one of those blessings. We will all, maybe not in the same extraordinary fashion as Job, we will all lose all our loved ones at one time in our life. We will lose all of our wealth because we cannot take it with us. We will all lose our health. It's only a matter of time before the secondary blessings that each one of us has will be taken from us, and where will our relationship be with God? Because if it's based upon those blessings, we will curse God. That's the question we have to ask ourselves. This is a very important question. Even though Satan uses it maliciously, we have to ask ourselves this. This also then reveals why God permits Satan to inflict suffering here. It's not like Satan is bullying God, right? For all of this malice against God or Job, actually, it seems as if Job is on trial in Job's experience as he's going to talk us through the next few weeks. But actually what Satan is doing is putting God on trial. He's saying, "Are you actually worthy of worship?" Because these people that you created, if you bless them, they're just going to be in it for you, for the stuff, not for you. And this is a more important thing because God's glory is actually on trial. That's why he permits Satan to do it because God's glory actually is being questioned here. Are you worthy, God? And this reveals a very hard truth, but a very important truth for us to grasp as genuine followers of Jesus. The glory of God is more important than my comfort. It's a hard truth, an important one. We need to sit with this. And wrestle with this. If you're taking notes, maybe this is a question that you maybe want to sit with and pray through and think through and reflect upon with the Lord. The glory of God is more important than Job's comfort. It is more important than my comfort because what ultimately is at stake is not just Job, it's God's glory. And here, this is why it's important because the universe itself hinges on the glory of God. All of the universe hinges and rests on God's glory. And if God's glory is being questioned, then nothing good can happen in the earth. And if God's glory is upheld, then good can happen on the earth. And it may seem like when we think about God's glory and God kind of defending his glory as if God is some kind of human megalomaniac. But here's the thing, we need to understand why it's good for God to defend and be about his glory. When his glory is upheld, it is ultimately resulting in the good for us. Let me give you a trivial illustration. Maybe this helps. Maybe I suggest after this you know season of the NFL is over that I am awarded the NFL MVP award for this past season. <laughs> Some of you laugh, right? I'm surprised that more of you laugh at that. But if Brock Purdy wins, you probably won't have much concern or worry about that Indeed, actually, if the 49ers fans would be probably mad if they didn't give it to Brock Purdy, except for maybe McCaffrey if he got it. But if they wore it to me or something, maybe they award it to Bryce Young, the quarterback with the worst passer rating this, at the end of the season. It would be terrible, wouldn't it? Because it would be dishonoring. It would not recognize the glory or the weight of the people who actually are worthy of that award in a silly but similar way. This helps us understand the universe goes wrong when the God who made everything that has always existed does not receive right glory. And when he does receive right glory, it ultimately results in our good. This is why we need to understand the glory of God is more important than my comfort. It is more important than my comfort. But it does not mean or does not suggest that even though God permits Satan sometimes to inflict pain, that he does not care for Job, or he does not care for us. Certainly, Job will question this, because he is never given this heavenly perspective. But notice how God speaks about Job. Look at verse 8. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He says it again in chapter 2, verse 3, after Job loses everything, he says, my servant. We don't use this label very often, and so we don't get how significant this is. But this is a mark of honor and nearness and intimacy with God. It reveals a special relationship where this servant title is used of Abraham. Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and the prophets. It is high praise from God. God is happy with Job. And it's kind of weird to say it this way, but God is proud of Job. He's deeply proud of Job and loves Job. There's nothing but love and approval and pride in Job, his servant. But because God's glory is ultimate, it means actually sometimes being in positions where it seems as if God hates you, but that's only in appearance because God's heart towards Job and his children is nothing but love and commendation. And we know as followers of Jesus that in Jesus there is no condemnation. And any suffering that we experience in Christ is not because of God's rejection of us. And we see here even just a small shadow of how God limits and overcomes evil and suffering. This is a very amazing perspective that helps us grasp and wrestle with the question of suffering we also then need to see how job responds and this where we need to look at this earthly perspective this picture that we come back to earth and satan is quickly at work satan is permitted to afflict job and now we're back to earth and immediately he goes from riches to rags in such an extraordinary fashion he loses everything people property all his prosperity is taken it's terrifying it's devastating, and it's quick. It's like stabbing again and again in quick fashion, woe after woe. His animals are taken away from, by his enemies. His servants are killed by war, terrorism, and violent crime. And before he can even kind of grapple with the loss of his portfolio because his animals are taken away, imagine if your entire retirement portfolio was wiped out in a matter of minutes. That's what he's feeling. And then another messenger comes. You get another email and says the natural disaster has now killed the rest of his animals. And then camels are taken by violent men. And if these three blows were not enough, he then receives the numbing news that all of his children have died in a freak storm. It would be like you, again, getting your entire retirement wiped away in a matter of minutes and then getting a call from the Chicago Highway Patrol that, your three children who were driving on the way to Tahoe were wiped away in an avalanche. That is what he is feeling. You see, human evil, natural disasters, everything afflicting Job. Job loses everything except for his wife, who isn't actually all that helpful. We'll look in a second. And this suffering, although extraordinarily quick, actually relates to every single human suffering. We will all, and as humans on this earth, some of us will experience incredible crime and terrorism. We will experience natural disaster. We will experience family death. He experiences disease, humiliation of his body, and desolation. And look at his response in verse 20 to 22. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Exact opposite of what Satan says he will do. Satan says, You take it from him, he will curse you. Job says, Blessed be the name. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. This is amazing. Job knows that in the end of his life, everything's going to be taken away anyways. And so he's like processing, it's as if he died today. And he expresses this trust that despite literally losing everything he has, and then in chapter 2, he loses his pain, on his, he loses his body in many ways. He understands that every good gift he's ever had in his life was from God, and he still expresses trust. He blesses God. Satan loses. It is possible to love God for God himself and not just the stuff you get from God. Even after he loses everything, you see Satan going after his body and he still responds with worship. Look at verses 9 to 10 and you see Satan kind of working in and through his wife here to to kind of challenge him one more time. Then his wife said to him, do you hold fast your integrity? Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die and he said to her you speak as one of the foolish women would speak shall we receive good from god and shall we not receive evil in all this job did not sin with his lips amazing his response helps us begin to process how we should respond to suffering the first thing is he grieved right he tore his clothes he shaved his head he sat down in ashes Job is never rebuked for his grief. His grief is not called sin, right? He, in all of this, he did not sin. So his actions are not sin. His words, as we'll see in the conversations, his very strong words actually are never sin against God. It's important to say that his expression of grief, physical, verbal, emotional, is not reviewed as negative. It's not rebuked. I think some of us think in grief, as Christians, we're just to get over it. And so we say sometimes the people in the midst of great suffering or loss, very unhelpful things. And so we don't actually have a space and a process for grief. Many of us approach grief very poorly. And this is true of all of us as people, whether we know God or not. I think a lot of us go to these two extremes. We either avoid or we numb. And so when grief occurs, we just avoid people. We just kind of shut down. We don't respond to calls anymore. We turn off our phone. We don't respond to emails. We just kind of sit. We just want to pretend it doesn't happen or we just are feeling too much and so I have no ability to respond at all. Or we sometimes numb. Where we go either, either one of these extremes. I think one of the expressions of avoidance in our, in our culture as followers of Jesus is I, I think sometimes when we experience the loss of family members, even if they're Christians, I think we jump too quickly to celebrations of life. And I'm not saying that there's not an appropriate place for that, but if there's not a place for grief, like Jesus wept when Lazarus died even though he knew he was going to raise him from the dead, because there's something about death that is right and is appropriate to grieve, to cry, to wail, to feel. I think we're not, if we jump too quickly to celebrations, we're not authentic about loss, and we hijack actually what we're supposed to go through as followers of God. We hijack as a church if we, you know, Wash over loss and death with just saying all the good things and we don't sit with the terribleness of it. There's an appropriateness to that and Job shows us this here. Some of us numb. We numb with Netflix, drinking, drugs, shopping. Disneyland can be a way to numb. We just go somewhere where it's the happiest place on earth except for my wallet We've done all those kinds of things. Some of us have done all of these at the same time. We, we experience grief and we go from numbing to avoiding to numbing to, we just go back and forth. But Job experiences significant, extraordinary loss in suffering. And he authentically expresses it. Now his wife says something about the, the one blasphemous way to respond. There is a line to be crossed. Right? You can be candid about your despair, honest with questions, and we should not suppress them, but we, we don't go to cursing God in that. We can go to God with our anger. We can express that anger. He wears, He tears his robe, shaves his head, and falls to the ground. All cultural ways of honesty, of expressing grief, and I think that's something we need to understand. That's why the Psalms are full of raw language. We need to grapple with this. When we experience suffering, I think we need to understand it is appropriate, it's right to grieve. In fact, to dismiss it, to run from it, to kind of tell people to get over it is incredibly ungodly and unhelpful. I think a second way he responds is really helpful for us. Job is never given the perspective we get as the reader. He never knows what goes on in heaven. And all the way to the end of the book, God never tells him this. He never gets that perspective. God gives him a different, you know, earth kind of amazing universal perspective, but he never gets a perspective of what this conversation with the Satan is. And this is very important. He can worship in mystery. He can worship despite having all the answers. And I think that's a correction for me and maybe for you today, because I want to know everything before I can worship. Maybe you're like me. I want answers, God. In fact, when I suffer, I kind of demand in my conversations with God, please give me your strategic plan, God. Because, you know, I have some critiques for this plan that you have going on in my life. And if I kind of agree with it, then I will worship you. But honestly, if I'm honest, even if God gave me his detailed plan from beginning to end of why I'm going through suffering... I probably still would want to avoid it. <laughs> I imagined this this past week. Joey, if he's good, God said to me, you're going to go through tremendous physical pain for three days. By the end of this, all of your elders will be blessed amazingly. I think I would say to God, I think they're blessed enough. I'll pass. <laughs> like, even if we know the plan, right? Most of us would probably want to avoid it. See, knowing all the answers is not a prerequisite for worship. He worships in mystery. There will be mystery in our life. You will go through circumstances for which you will never receive an answer for. And as a person who knows the living God, if you profess Jesus especially, you can still worship in the mystery. And the reason we can do that, and I'll conclude with this, is because we have a perspective that Job never had. We have a unique perspective that no one in the Old Testament ever had. We have this perspective that ties heaven and earth together in the person of Jesus Christ. We have the final answer, actually, to Satan in Jesus. Do you know that? Actually, you get a glimpse of this even in Jesus' earthly ministry as he was talking to Peter. Jesus said to Peter in this experience, predicting his betrayal. He says in Luke 22, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And he says, notice Jesus doesn't say, but that's not going to happen. Actually, Satan goes forward to sift him. Actually, we know Peter fails. But look what Jesus does. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Christ, praise for us. We know that he is at the right hand of the Father right now, that he is the one interceding on our behalf. Satan is still the accuser, working in this world, telling us lies, you know? That that person, Joey, that says he loves you, he's not that worth it. He's got all kinds of evil in his heart still. He just worships you because of the things that you blessed him with. Satan still charges every accuses every single one of us. But the difference we have from Job is significant. Satan continues to accuse, but his accusations against his children today will never stand because the final verdict is already given. Job suffered and blessed God and he silenced Satan. But he did it for himself because he cannot stand in our place. Christ suffered and silenced Satan. It is finished once and for all. And so Satan's accusations against God's children are final. And so God can say to you if you are in Christ, have you considered my servant, Hillary? She is in Jesus. You have nothing against her. He can say, have you considered my servant, Tim? Nothing you can say can stand against him because he is in Jesus. As a result of Jesus' victory on the cross and his resurrection, we can look actually to the book of Revelation as God is, again, ruling from the heavens. And you notice who's not in the council anymore, who's thrown away forever, it is Satan. Friends, God has not promised us the absence of suffering. In fact, he promises us in our earthly life the presence of it. But he always promises to be with us. For those who are in Jesus, we know suffering may be chapters of our life, but it is never the end. Even if you do not have the present answer to your suffering, we know it is not the final chapter. In Christ, we can say, blessed be the name of the Lord, even in the mystery of suffering. Praise be to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have an answer to Satan's accusations. And that because of Jesus, you look at us as child, son, and daughter. You call us friend, not because of our good or our bad, but because we are in Jesus who died once for all for us. May that strengthen us. May that give us resolve to bless you in the face of mystery. Help us humbly come before you in the suffering that we have. Help us to be honest and authentic as a church, God, not to overlook the pain that is still very real and the trauma that is still maybe there. But, Father, let us cling to you and run to you and never away from you because you are a God who is ever present, ever near. And we see that because you've given us your son, Jesus, and you've given us your spirit who is here as our comforter. Help us to cling to you. Amen.